Hello and welcome to the Mullet Over Podcast. Nothing. You, you were about to start and then you stopped. I've been doing uh, just the strange, weird sounds at the beginning because we we don't have some intro splash yet, and uh, so then it became a thing, and so I just and I was I'm, like, I'm motivated I'm like, to not to not do it because I enjoy that part of it. So, so, so Dr. Richard Mull, you want to introduce our guest? And- yeah, I am really excited about our guest today. I, um, I actually called him kind of to find out his, where he was at in his faith, um, I don't know, six months ago. But I've been following him. On, there were different podcasts that I followed. We, as an organization, minister to stuff that is so far off the grid of what most people are aware of, satanic ritual abuse, and uh, have for years – there's zero doubt in our mind that we're dealing with truth and reality, even though there's it's called all kind of things. It's conspiracy theory, false memory syndrome. I could go on. on yeah. I know you're going to know about all that stuff. And so one of the things that I actually, in my quest for knowledge, if someone's uh, – if if the truth that they're presenting costs them something – it increases their credibility in my eyes. If it's not the main line, but it's cost them their job, their reputation, like I'm going, there's somebody trying to stifle that voice. And so John is going to tell more of his story. I don't want to tell his story, but was a police officer, um, came across satanic ritual abuse, all the child pedophile stuff, which is all over England. He's, he's from the U.K., and um, and became a whistleblower, and it cost him nearly everything, nearly his life, um, career, and stuff like that. And uh, and 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 it's so incredibly effective. Typically, the strategies that are used that silence people. But he has fought through and come to the place where he's not going to be quiet, and has a lot to share. And so we're looking forward. We we want the story, you know. Um, uh, Sean Atwood is, I think, probably one of the ones that I had, uh, and and he yeah. just gets people telling their story. Uh, I know it, and I want our listeners. And 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 the question: This is going to be a question I either throw out there now or, or later. I I we deal with so many people that have been through satanic ritual abuse, have been human trafficked, and almost every one of them can tell many stories of people involved in. ATF, in um, police, in all these different federal agencies who were part of that world system, that the satanic system and stuff like that. And, and at the same time, we deal with people like I am a Christian, sold out believer, believe in the church, um, but, but such a high percentage, it's been pastors. <laughs> That, to, to my mind, doesn't say all pastors are bad, anything but that. But we deal with it so much. Um, and and, and um, when I was talking to you, you know, like, so one of the questions um, has been, why are there so few whistleblowers, that, you know, police whistleblowers? Um, it, because we, we know that it is rife. Um, in Tampa Bay, uh, I, I know enough to know that it has a, been a serious problem. People involved in the occult in our city and high up in the police force. Um, not mentioning any names, um, not ready to face the fire over that. And I don't have the evidence. I, I do have uh, firsthand knowledge, but I, it would be um, people who have 
known the people and known what they were involved in, people who were close to them, people who were both in the police force and in other arenas that, that it, it's their firsthand knowledge, people that I have a high respect and trust for. But anyways, that's one of the things. So, so tell us your story. I'm looking forward to hearing it again. I've heard it, but. Well, firstly, thank you for getting me on. Um, my name is John Wedger and I'm a, a successfully retired, uh, Metropolitan Police Detective, part of, um, the Scotland Yard set, as it were, and I, I specialise. are made out of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, everywhere you go, Scotland Yard, Scotland Yard, it's seen as the, the benchmark for policing excellence around the world, and very much of that is true, but a lot of it is, is a bygone era. Um, and I specialised in child abuse investigations and, and vice, so I worked on vice, on street vice for many years, uh, and also on uh, serious crimes, sexual crimes against children. And, you know, my, my career, I had a fantastic career. You know, I did many, many things, all very much detective-led. Uh, but the, the obstacles come when, when you deal with, with child abuse. It's it, it, The whole rules change. Uh, everything goes upside down. So I, I was doing very, very well. Um, I was highly acclaimed, highly commended. Uh, until I was asked to um, look into uh, why so many sex offenders were ab- absconding um, and avoiding registration. So we, we have a, a system that came in uh, in 1997 where sex offenders had to sign on a register and tell the police, really, their, their intimate um, comings and goings, and the police could monitor their risk. And so many went missing... They didn't know why, and they asked me to look into it. And they said, look, you know, we, we've lost two sex offenders in London that we believe are living on boats, canal boats. And what you understand with the UK, it's got uh, an extensive inland waterways network. I mean, these things predate railways, and it was a way of, of getting, you know, this, the commodities that were coming in from all over the empire to all, all the all the cities in the UK. So every city, every little town was, was linked by a canal system. And now that we're not an industrial nation anymore, and it's been really handed over to the leisure industry and, and as a, a place of residence. Um, and it's also a cheap alternative to bricks and mortar. Now, they had information from the prison system that two sex offenders had gone to live on boats. And they said, if you can find another two... In the next few months, we're very happy. Well, in the first month, I found 90, 90. Uh, 90. 90, yeah. yeah. And you were we're, looking for two. Two wow. was my target, and, and I found 90. And some of these were serious, serious, dangerous uh, uh, offenders, which, which had the uh, you know the potential and the propensity to, to seriously harm, or, or if not murder, sexually children. Uh, they couldn't, didn't know why, and, and I was to then discover that it was a way of gaining anonymity and avoiding just legal loophole and, and just move about with impunity. Um, and that was fantastic. Everyone was happy from the bottom to the top. But then I started becoming uh, like a focal point, a central point of contact for anyone looking for a sex offender connected to a boat. And I didn't realise what I was on the precipice of because um, with a lot of the inquiries that subsequently came out in the UK, which involved politicians, um, even inferred that members of the royal family might be involved, 
and, and we see evidence of that with the recent Epstein thing. Um, uh, a lot of uh, people in the media, the celebrity world, uh, connections and everything sort of, um, people get thrown to the wolves all the time and the police really all they ever do is pick the low-hanging fruit. But at the moment, one of theirs, people high up in society, connected or involved, the rules change. So all of a sudden I start getting information regarding politicians that are involved, uh, people high up in the education system, uh, you know, the political world, the police, central government. Um, and the next thing, uh, the whole thing crashed. And I was told, right, that's it, finish, pack up, no more to be seen. Um, it's not going anywhere. And I, I inquired as to why. And I was just told, well, look, no real reason. We just can't afford the operation to keep running. And that's that. And, and I, I I wasn't sort of, um, sorry, I just got someone walking by. I wasn't sort of content with that. So what I did was I, I pushed the senior officer a bit more information and he turned around and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to be truthful to you, uh, John. He said, I like you. Uh, you've been too successful and this has come from high up. This is beyond questioning, right? It's just got to stop. And it was because the, these people connected to central government were involved. Um, I was able to find out that, you know, uh, paedophilia controls global politics. And, and we'll see that. Say that again. That, paedophilia controls global politics and I'll explain a bit more about the reasons why it's an important commodity children are the ultimate commodity drugs you use them once I just heard know, the statistic of like 40 kids you, kids you use many many times so, so what happened then was that I, I didn't want to work on that unit anymore and, and I said well I want to move and I left that unit and I went to work on the vice unit, working on the streets with prostitutes. And um, I then uh, had information that a little girl would come forward saying that she was being trafficked. She was being pimped out, as it were, and had done for many years. And she was 14 years old and uh, she wanted to speak to someone. And, and she'd been ignored on two occasions. She made two serious allegations and been ignored. And I was told, go and, go and speak to her. She's probably a liar. Um, you know, so don't don't worry about it. Um, you know, go there. If it is a lie, we'll just write her off. Anyway, I went to see her. She wasn't lying. She was telling the truth. And she gave this horrific testimony of how she was, um, her mum was a heroin addict and how she was picked up by a woman. Um, and pimped out actually by a woman and taken to various central London locations and passed around so she would be passed around in crack houses um, in the morning and the evening taken to wealthy um, restaurants frequented by wealthy Arabs in central London and passed around for £2,000 a time so she was very much telling the truth um, but she said it's not just me, there's others um, I, I want you to speak to my friend so I went to speak to a friend, uh, and a friend was even younger than her, younger looking, same story. And her friend said, look, there's another girl. And each time, the girls got younger and younger. So within a week, I ended up speaking to a nine-year-old girl that was involved in it. It was just extensive um, a paedophile racket, really. And all, all the kids had one thing in common. They'd all come from the care system. Uh, you know, they're all from impoverished backgrounds and they were very vulnerable in that respect. And 
but one thing they also kept saying was that there was a judge involved and uh, the woman that was running this racket, she was connected to police and they said she never, ever gets convicted at court because the judge makes sure she doesn't. And uh, we actually found out yeah, that that was the case, you know, that each time uh, she went before the magistrates for a prostitution misdemeanor or something like that, the case was always thrown out. Um, so when I arrested her, I, I made sure she went to a different court, a different sessions area, and and she was very confident up until that stage. And the moment I told her she was she was being remanded in custody to go to another uh, a court, she went crazy. And what happened then was that I was dragged in, you know, to see the um, the most senior of seniors, high ranking officer, and told her, "You've got to drop this. You've got to back down. This can't ever happen." Um, you know, this is going to F us, past, present and future. You have no idea what you're dealing with. And at the time, I, of course, I didn't. I didn't have any idea what I was dealing with. Now and you, I didn't, you, didn't you have children yourself? Yeah, yeah. So I was a single parent of four kids. So I, I had young kids that were going from primary school age up to secondary school age. And, and what Boys I was, and girls. Yeah, all boys. And, and I was okay. warned that if I mentioned a word what I'd found out outside of the room that I would lose my home, my children, and my job. I need wow. to shut shut the F up. And I was told, no idea who you're dealing with, and no one can save you. You will be thrown to the wolves. Uh, and, I, you know, I thought it was just a bit of bullying, but it wasn't. This, funny enough, ironically, the, the guy um, was trying to help me. Yeah. But he knew something I didn't know. And I didn't realise how sinister it was. And, and as the time went on, I left that unit and I went on to work with, with child abuse cases against kids, a dedicated unit. But in the, in the intermediate time, the case was going to the Crown Court, two of the children died in suspicious deaths, which really had an impact on me. Mm. Um, and I started and I was told I could never, ever look into child prostitution again. But I did. And within my, well, within my first month, I started looking into it. And within a week, I found 50 kids uh, that were being exactly the same thing in a different part yeah. of London. And and again, shut down. So on three occasions now, all within three years, shut down, shut down, shut down. Um, you know, and I was worried because I, I got threatened. But when, when, you know, the main witness, the young girl that was 14, she was found dead on the street, just thrown, discarded like a piece of trash, you know. Something occurred, changed, manifested in me that thought, no, no, this is your job. You need to stand up for these kids. So I did. I spoke out and I refused to back down. And I made mm. allegations of corruption against the senior officers because what they did was corrupt. It was malfeasance in high office. And it took a long time for an investigating team, an anti-corruption team, to take the case on. I had to make sure it was a woman that dealt with it um, and a senior woman, senior detective. And they couldn't understand why I wanted a woman. And I said, well, you can't roll up your trouser leg. And that was a, an inference that there will be no Masonic link with a woman, with the men. There is that corruptible Masonic link. And, wow. and it's something so that you, is, uh, did you know anything about masonry before then? No, and its not, connection? not really. 
not really. You know, I, to start with, no, I had no idea. I didn't even know what they were. Um, and then but when you knew the, enough at that point to go but by that by that point, yeah. Okay, I'd known friends in there, um, but I had no idea of that their real strength, the hold that they had. Um, and you know, I was later to find out that it's endemic. You know, and especially in the, the detective world. And you'll be hard pushed on some units to find a, a detective that isn't uh, on the square, as they say. Wow. Um, but see, see, what happened then was I got interviewed as a, as a vulnerable witness and, and offered all the security of a whistleblower. And I'm thinking, right, I'm safe. This is good. I'm bulletproof. But what happened then was that they discontinued the investigation so it's a serious, serious allegation. So we're talking very high up, not far off treason here. And um, what they did was they, they just rang up the officers concerned, high-ranking officers, said, is this true, what, what this detective's saying? They said no. So they shut the case. So there was no investigation. So and I said to them, is that how we investigate? We just ring up, you know, suspects, do we? And if they deny it, we close the case. But then they turned their efforts on me. So I was then subject to a four-year bullying campaign um, in which I nearly lost my home, my job, and my children. So the threats that were put to me, they were carried out. So there was nine cases um, of, of criminality that the, the, the police put against me. And and these were... Um, that's, that's such an effective... Um, strategy to silence someone because people go, well, see, this person doesn't have credibility. And yeah. that happens again and again. Well, there's a need, there's a need to denigrate. Um, and, and by that time, there, there'd been a case uh, in the United Kingdom of a guy called Jimmy Savile. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Savile w- was a disc jockey, um, TV personality, children's TV presenter. And he turned out to be one of the most prolific paedophiles that's ever come to light. I don't think he's the most prolific one ever because uh, they never get arrested. But this guy, posthumously, they, they found him to be a massive paedophile who was connected to people like Prince Charles, Margaret Thatcher, um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, you know, he, he, this guy was global with his reach. Anyway, so... Um, as a result of that, we started getting this whistleblower movement in the UK, and luckily there were there were two other detectives who would uh, come forward regarding separate investigations, both identical to mine. So one was the city of Manchester, where young girls from care homes um, and impoverished backgrounds were being pimped out, and she exposed it, and she was bullied, and the same threats put to her. And another was a kid's home in the island of Jersey, which is an overseas dependency, very wealthy overseas dependency to the UK, in which kids were put in a children's home and and used um, for sex parties. But this actually had a satanic ritual element to it and kids were actually killed and and body parts were found. And the officer Mm -hmm. dealing with that, same thing, threatened, bullied, uh, the threat to take his granddaughter into care and all sorts. Um, so I got connected to these people via a politician and they all said the same. They both said to me, look, you know, what you're looking at goes to the heart of the British establishment. Um, they're going to come for you. 
Um, one of the first things they'll do you for is data protection violations. So they'll go through uh, the intelligence indices that, that you had access to. Um, they'll do an audit trail and they'll question because it's all subjective what you look at and why you look at it. And I was dealing with um, police informants. Uh, I, I was dealing with quite high level criminality, you know, and I've dealt with some very sort of um, big stuff in my time. So, uh, you know, I, I had to look at people's past and, and people connected to them because it's all about intelligence. Um, so they questioned some of the stuff that I'd, I'd looked at, which is exactly what I was told would happen. And of course it's an instant dismissal and it's an instant uh, criminal investigation. So what the police do is they're not just satisfied with finding a work-related uh, misdemeanour. They'll have you for that, but they'll run a dual investigation and they'll also, in parallel, they'll run a criminal investigation along with an employment one. So they always have two bites of the cherry um, in, in an attempt, really, to, to crush you. Um, the, uh, so there was many of them that they were kept hitting me with and each one could, could have a two-year prison sentence. Uh, they uh, came up with an allegation that I'd been involved in the conspiracy to supply Class A drugs. Again, I, I will go into that. I mean, it's actually laughable. Um, it, it's a nonsense, but I, I won't trouble you with that because there's quite a long narrative. But, um, but yeah, again, it's a joke. And they said, right, you'll get 15 years for this. Theft was another one. Um, I'd printed off an invoice whilst on night duty once because I had a second business. I used to be a tree surgeon. I used to climb trees and cut trees down at the weekend for extra money, being a single parent. And uh, I printed off an invoice on their computer once, and uh, they said I'd stolen one sheet of A4 paper. Um, so, wow. <laughs> you know, this is the level they went to. Uh, and then something really despicable occurred, but um, it was a major turning point in my life. And, and this really cemented my my path in, in not only just uh, walking with Jesus, but doing his work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of my boys w- was involved in, in a life-changing um, uh, and catastrophic accident um, in which he, he was severely injured and uh, his life was hanging on a thread um, one day. And uh, I get called to a... Uh, uh, a hospital nearly 100 mile away, a good hour and a half drive from my home. And it's a specialist unit which deals with um, neurological and spinal injuries. And my son had severed his spinal cord by 95%. Uh, his expectation of life was not really there. Um, so he needed to undergo an emergency operation, which he successfully did. Um he, uh, from that point on, he was going to be permanently disabled and his quality of life w- was yet to be gauged. He then spent many months, the best part of that year, in in an intensive care unit and he was slipping in and out of comas and so it's hard to um, evaluate uh, his progress. But his injuries were, were, were very, very bad. He had paralysis. Um, he was predicted never to walk again. And uh, he had um, uh, he'd breathe in. He couldn't breathe independently. He was on a, a ventilator and, and things like that. So he was there for many, many months. Um, and as is a case with the ICU, you have good days and you have terrible days. 
and one day um, I'd just been visiting him and during the visit he said something really strange he he, um, he was very lucid uh, but as I went in he had um, a tracheotomy and they'd feed him through a whole thing there but they would remove the pipe for a half an hour to stop his, his esophagus furring up and drying up and he he could just about talk he, his body he couldn't move it but he could just literally flick a finger and that was literally it um i walked into to the hospital and he's indicating for me to leave and the nurse said you know he's been acting very strange and saying some strange things and and what he said to me was that there's witches flying around the ceiling um they're like something out of harry potter and they they hate you and they know you've been coming and they say that they hate you for what you do and I, I, I didn't know what it was on about. So what you want to be? He said they're everywhere, and they're actually throwing, you know, their feces, their urine, they're sick all over you. You're covered in it. You're just covered in it. And they hate you, and they're witches, and they're everywhere. They're all in this room, and they're all they, they've been waiting for you. He said you've got to go, Dad. You've got to go. So I left. I left the hospital, uh, and I went home. And it was, I put it down to the drugs, um, and left it at that. Uh, so, and he was actually at that point on a detox um, from the, you know, uh, the drugs. So they, and they said that sometimes they can suffer a delirium, but only you last a couple of hours. He'd been like it, you know, for a couple of days. So I went home um, and then, I don't know, it was later that evening. I, I get a call and this hospital said, can you come back? Can you come back? So I rushed back. They wouldn't tell me why. I knew it was bad news. And I went back, and when I got there, there were three consultants, uh, high-level doctors, waiting for me. And they took me into a side room, and they said, look, we've got some bad news. Unfortunately, we've lost your son. Uh, he um, went into cardiac arrest. He's, he's got uh, multiple organ failure, like sepsis. Uh, we, we estimate that he's been not breathing for 10 minutes. We've artificially done CPR for seven and a half minutes, um, He's on full 100% life support. So his lungs are being compressed at 100%. And each time that happens, each second, each minute, the the compressed air explodes the alveoli in the lungs and they never repair. So the person ends up with permanent lung failure anyway. So you can only do 100% uh, uh, lung inflation through these respirators um, uh, for a few days before you, you're going to kill someone anyway through it. Um, they and they said, look, and his brain's been without oxygen for nearly ten minutes. There's no way he's going to survive that. If he does pull through, uh, we predict he's going to have total body paralysis and, and severe brain damage. Um, so we recommend that after five days, um, we if we don't get the heart murmur big enough, we, we we're going to shut down the machine. Do you consent to it? Mm. And I had no reason to to fight it I'm you know I'm a pragmatic man one thing with me I'm very pragmatic I can accept a situation in a heartbeat uh, maybe that's uh, being a single parent and being a police officer that's done that you know life can change very very quickly you know um, so I said okay okay do it I said but can I stay with my son and they went yep so at home I had uh, um uh three other kids one was 26 uh, the other was 19 and the other was uh what 
I don't know, about 15. He was under 16, not by much. Uh, but they were okay. They were they were happy enough there. Um, so I decided to spend every minute with my son. And if I wasn't manipulating his arms and his legs, trying to get, because the muscles deplete very, very quickly when someone is in that sort of stasis. And I was by his side day in, day out. I only left when they had to do the necessary personal care and cleaning. Uh, and at which time I would go into the chapel. Now, the UK is, is you, know, not, you know, especially the London area, it's the, one of the most diverse places on the planet. And because we're an ex-colonial uh, country, then, you know, our workforce represents that, So, in, especially in hospitals. So this hospital had doctors from the, nurses from the Philippines, doctors from Sri Lanka and Nigeria and, you know, everything, you, you name it, every colour, every creed, every nationality. So... The, the chapel was, was a multi-faith room, so it had uh, the prayer mats for the Muslims, it had a little temple thing for the Hindu doctors, um, and had a little, like an altar, and there was a few other bits and pieces there for God knows what else, but there, there was an altar there, and there were some Bibles, and, and I went and I would read, I would read the book of Psalms, I read, the, you know, the, the book of Matthew, and, um, and I'd be in prayer. And on the third day, it was not going in my favour. And I was angry, angry with God because, you know, I'd done nothing wrong. All I'd ever done was help children, you know. And um, and I thought that that's what Jesus wanted, you know. You know he clearly states that anyone who harms a child, um, put that millstone around your neck and, and, and jump in the lake. You know, it makes it quite clear how, how he feels about people who hurt children. And... Um, and I thought he would favour me. And I got angry. And I got really, really angry with God and with Jesus. And, and I started shouting out in front of everyone. I started saying, now, how dare people leave their children? I cursed every single parent who left their kids, every absent parent, I must add, who abandoned their children. I cursed them. I cursed every paedophile. I cursed everyone, really, who, who, who doesn't put children as their priority. And then I said something, and I said, Jesus, you know, you're the shepherd. They're your flock, you know, and I've been helping you bring them in. And I said, if you think I'm going out there, you know, uh, as a shepherd to bring in the lost sheep in the late at night in all weathers, and I can't even help my children, and you want me to help kids that have been abandoned by their own parents, punish their parents for abandoning them, punish their, their family and their parents for abusing them, don't punish me. And I said, you won't get me compliant. I'm not I'm not doing it. Give me my son. Give me my son. And it went mm. from a demand to a plea. And then I fell on my knees. I fell on my knees and I just graciously asked him. I said, Jesus, please give me my son and you will have me. I will do your work. Mm. I said, I promise you I will do you. I will go out in the weather. So I will not let you down. And so, and I said, and I will not back down. I will take whatever's coming to me. Because I was facing prison. There was nine cases going through the Crown Courts um, against me. The banks had come round to, to look at repossession my house because I couldn't pay my mortgage. I had... Um, um, now, you know, I'm looking at losing one of my kids. So I, I realised that, you know, this is this is getting... Um, this is getting really, really serious. So um, 
I, I went back into the into the, the hospital or into the into the wing. So I'm just pouring a little drink there, and and I thought, well, all I can do is spend my time with my son. So I literally sat down and I held my boy's hand, and as I did, he opened his eyes. You know, literally within a second of me sitting down, he opened his eyes and he looked at me. And I think he's alive and. The machinery just went into life, you know, it was crazy. It just started before it was very low and next thing it's it's going crazy. Uh his um heart has sprung back into life, um there's no need to fibrillate him anymore and it it was, it was mad and uh, and I said, Just move your toes and he moved his toes on his left and his right foot. So I knew that there was life in his feet and so I squeezed my hand and he squeezed it with one hand, squeezed it with the other hand. And the nurse, she'd gone into a panic and she'd gone and get to get the consultant and she was amazed. <laughs> and I said, nurse, no, wait here, I'm going home. And she said, how can you go home? Your son. I said, no, he's alive. And I just said to him, son, I love you. And I could see him doing his best. He had pipes everywhere. He couldn't do anything, but he was trying to, you know, mouth the word, I love you too, dad. Um, I could see it. His eyes were alive and he was alive. And I, I drove home. And, you know, the bizarrest thing, when I got home, I, I went in through the back of the house, not the front, and I ran in, and as I ran in, uh, I looked out through the window of my kitchen, and I could see two men talking to, to my oldest son, who was fixing his car. And I thought, I recognise their suits, I recognise it, these, these are detectives. And I could hear them asking my son, do you know John Wedger? And my son was good, he was denying it. You know, he was loyal. And I thought, no, it's not his battle. I'm, and I opened the door and I said, you're after me, gentlemen. They went, yep. Yeah. I said, come on in. So they came on in. And then I said to them, you know, what do you want? And they said, well, you know, we're, we're going to arrest you for child abandonment. Because I left my 15-year-old son home alone whilst my son was dying in hospital. Because someone had told them that, um, that I was in the hospital uh, with my boy and so they decided that that's what they were going to do so they had absolutely no compassion at all for me my situation but what that did was my fear had gone so from that moment that my son opened his eyes my fear went and I was no longer scared of them and I said you're not going to take me and you're not going to take my kids it's not happening and I took totally took authority and they ended up leaving and with nothing, doing nothing against me. Um, within days, every case against me was dropped by the Crown Prosecution, which is our uh -huh. uh, adjudicating authority, government-appointed adjudicators. They, they dropped every case uh, that the Crown had against me. And um, John, I don't know if you knew this. I want to interrupt, but I want I want to keep you going. But I don't know if you knew this. My son, my youngest son, he's 16 now, died in my arms, was dead for 40 minutes. Oh, I stood over him, praying over him, and he's a little miracle boy too. And and uh, 40 minutes, no heartbeat, no wow, anything. And and uh, yeah, he's not brain dead. Everything that they said was going to be wow. it, there you go. It, it isn't true. We serve a mighty God, so that yeah, is yeah. amazing. I had heard it before, but it was uh, it, well. Was, well, uh, he he sticks to his promise, and um, and I to stick to mine. Uh, you know, within. A matter of weeks that I'd um, they'd reversed the decision not to retire me. They they then said that they were going to retire me. 
They gave me all the back pay for not. I didn't get paid for three years. Um, and then I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then I went to see someone who also a whistleblower, but had run a kids charity and taken on the government for cover-ups. And she said, uh, use your skills, go out there and talk to the, um, the, the survivors from the care homes, because, you know, a lot of the people that got to prison have been brought up in these children's homes and have been abused. So, I said, okay, I'll do that. So I set out with my iPhone. I learned how to, um, someone showed me how to to do these broadcasts. And I started interviewing ex-criminals and getting their testimony of what had happened to them. And one guy, a lovely guy called Bill Maloney, who'd been in a care home and suffered horrific abuse, Mm. mainly from the Catholic institutions, um, and have been sexually abused by nuns. Um, and there was nine of them, Irish Catholics. And he's, him and his brother, the only ones alive now. Uh, the rest of all died through alcoholism, suicide, mm. and, you know, trauma-related stuff as a result of their time in the care homes. But this guy had gone on to become a filmmaker, and, um, and he was an ex-criminal. And me and him teamed up, and we did some brilliant work, you know, a really great work, and he... You know, and I started doing my interviews and they got massive traction. And he said, John, you want to be a soldier for Christ, yeah? And I went, yeah. He said, you know what Jesus wants you to do, John, don't you? I, I said, no, no, what? And he said, you've got to start talking about SRA. And he said, it's real. Because his sister was a victim. Sorry, my neighbor. His sister was a victim of, of ritual abuse. He said, you're the only one. You know, you've got to talk about it. So I said, okay, I will. So I, I then went and met with a guy called Wilfred Wong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Wilfred is now serving a, a lengthy prison sentence. He's a committed Christian, Wilfred, an ex-military guy. And he's an authority on ritualistic abuse. So I started investigating cases with Wilfred of, of ritualistic abuse uh, and that's when things really changed, you know, because up until then I'd had a really meteoric rise um, regarding the, the social media platform. I was uh, Facebook's fastest growing podcaster and it was nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And, um, the, but the moment I spoke about SRA, everything changed. I started um, getting hacked. I started getting organized trolling really awful organized trolling against me i i started getting um uh, pagan stuff left outside my house like reefs um and even animal body parts um chickens talons dead animals, all sorts started mm. uh, you know occurring i started getting sick so not um, talking about the child abuse and not talking about the trafficking or even the government whistleblowers when you hit the sra stuff but but it, it involves everything. So yeah, what, yeah, it's all interrelated. Yeah. But but it was all of a sudden you brought in that element that you had not been talking about before. Yeah, yeah, and and see, so one in ten of the survivors that I spoke to, one in ten, was from ritual abusive background, um, and then their stories were all the same, all the same. It was intergenerational, usually the grandparent. Uh, something you mentioned earlier about churches. Churches are always used as venues. 
At first, I never knew why. Now I do know because it's the ultimate mockery of Christ. Yep. You know, um, and so priests are used as well. And again, that I mean, that's the ultimate betrayal when when you get a priest involved in it. And then the other thing is that it stops people getting deliverance later on in life because mm-hmm. it's all rituals. And and the Bible will be used. You know, I've heard of them quoting from the Book of Isaiah. Um, uh, uh, there's a thing called the I, the five I wills. So I will be like the Most High. I will ascend above the clouds. I will. I will. Um, and and this is part of the satanic um, career of someone. They go through every thirteen years a different I will, and they they uh, you know will do these rituals in churches with with the bible um one person would say how a little sheep little baby lamb would be brought in and would be cut up over a child and they'd say this is the lamb of god and you know they'd do it whilst the thing was alive so it'd scream so whenever a child or or, or the adult later on hears the lamb of god and all that they just associate it with abuse and with the priest raping them animal mutilation and and kids are used people to that dress up like a Jesus and yeah all the time and yeah molest and or tell them they can never be forgiven that is all kind of it's unimaginable unfathomable but it, like so you, you're just an investigator you're you're not a conspiracy theorist you're just trying to find out what's there and could anybody convince you now that none of that's true. Oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, you know, and it's impossible. Unfortunately, um, the survivors, not many of them go to Jesus. They, sorry, I do apologise. Get the work going on. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, it is pretty noisy, but we yeah. can hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's just always one of the things when you talk about this topic. There's always a disruption. Yeah. Always. Oh, yeah. whenever ever I talk about this, bang! There's always a disruption. But yeah. um. They won't go because because of <laughs> what people people that are like listening to this are, would would not understand what you just said. We we do because like the stories are pretty bizarre. But but yeah, it's like, so, but, like but you can I, have a long conversation and the call starts dropping right away. Yeah, or, yeah we've had it, crows land r- right above where we were talking. When we get on the subject and they are so loud, two crows, like when have you ever been interrupted in your whole life by some crows? But when you talk about something like this, all of a sudden you're like, like, we can't talk here. And uh, it is, um, you know, greater is he that is in us. The enemy does not have near the power of Christ. No, no, that's right. And and But But he can do some... Interesting yeah, uh, things. It, I do. I just look and it's just an annoyance. Yep. And and that, that's. Uh, I I had a long interview with Russ Dizdar once, and um, and everything kept. You know, the, the signal was dropping out every five minutes, and you know, it was perfect. Everything was good before that. Then mm-hmm. the battery went, and it just boom, 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 constantly. But no, I, I started um, getting a bit of a name for myself as a person who spoke about this, and then I've become the target of. of this horrific um, organized trolling campaign um, uh, and it, it, it really got to me as well it become very personal um, I then got um, approached by the intelligence services I want to pray for you as as we close out um, 
just um, yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I see favor of God on you, um, and I just want to pray for more favor um, and uh, and um, supernatural protection over you, your children. I know what it's like. I've watched in the supernatural protection, and at the same time, the 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 spiritual assaults, and it can get heavy. It can get um, intense at times. So I just want to pray for you. Um, and then I'd like to ask you just to pray as well um, to close us out, if that's all right. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for John. I thank you, Lord, for the stand that he made, for the courage you gave him, even before he knew you, to do what was right. And I pray, Father God, there's, I pray that this podcast um, impacts people who've known the right thing to do and been too afraid to do it, Lord, and uh, that you're going to give them courage. I pray, Lord, for um, those, Lord, that have experienced the trauma, the abuse, uh, been afraid to tell anybody because they could name names. But, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give them courage and faith. And, Lord, I pray supernatural protection over John his household, his children, and uh, favor, the, the continued and even greater favor uh, as as he seeks to serve so many different people. What an amazing man. What an amazing servant heart. What amazing courage. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name.